0: All right, good morning, everybody. Good morning. Hymn of the week, hymn, or hymn of the month, excuse me, hymn 655. Lord, keep us steadfast in your word. 655, let's sing it. It's short, we'll do the whole thing. 655, 655. Lord, keep us steadfast in your word. Curb those who by deceit or sword would wrest the kingdom from your Son and bring to naught all he has done. Lord Jesus Christ, your power make known for you are Lord of lords alone, Defend your holy church that we May sing your praise eternally. O Comforter of priceless Word, Send peace and unity, on earth, support us in our final strife, and lead us out of death to life. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Again we pray. Lord, we implore you, grant your people grace to withstand the temptations of the devil and with pure hearts and minds to follow you, the only God. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Okay, the congregation at prayer. The verse of the week is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 53. Isaiah 53, 5. Let's speak this together. But... He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. Okay, Isaiah 53. 5. This is about the uh, what they call the suffering servant. So in your Bible, if you open it up, it'll often say the suffering servant. Of course, who is the suffering servant? It is Christ, yes. So he is wounded, he is bruised, and um, he has stripes. Now what does this all point to? Wounding, bruising, and the stripes. Yeah, it's all about the death. It's all about the cross of Christ. And particularly here, he was bruised. What does that make you think of? The,
1: bruised. The beatings that he
0: took before. Not about, well, yes, but think back to the first book of the Bible, the word bruised. Oh, okay. amen. Yes, yes amen. Genesis 3.15, the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel, the seed of the woman. He will crush the serpent's head and the serpent will bruise his heel. Here it is. He is bruised for our iniquities. Okay, and uh, I also want to say this. The chastisement, what is chastisement? You get in trouble, someone chastises you. you. Yeah, get punished punished. it's getting in trouble. Punishment is the, the one word answer. And uh, the chastisement then is from who? There's a chastisement for our sins. There is something that we owe. And this is the, it's sort of a trick question. Who do we owe it to? There's not, the thing is, there's not just one right answer here. There's, in my estimate, there are three. The first is to the father. There's a chastisement. The father cannot abide sin. So the second is to the devil, who owns you, and who stands before God and accuses you to God. And the third one is the law. Because even God himself must abide by the law. So when the law says that sinners must die, God says, yes, sinners do have to die. My hands are tied. Sinners must die. But the chastisement for the sinners will not be upon them. It will be upon him. That peace is made in Christ. This is really great, this peace, uh, or this word peace, because it should remind you of Luther's Hymn setting of the Nunc Dimittis. um, Because he says, Peace with God once more is made. Now thank we all our God. Bum, bum, ba-dum, bum, bum. Bum, 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 bum. Hey? Bum, 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 bum. Peace with God once more is made. Oh, Lord, have mercy. Okay? Uh, Maybe I'm getting two (laughs) different hymns mixed up. But... You're getting getting the point. Peace with God once more is made. The chastisement is given, it is paid, it is received by Christ, and that merits peace. And all of this brings us healing. And uh, healing is found then in, notice all of this. Where do you get a wound? Where do you get a bruise? Where do you receive stripes? What kind of language is this? Where do you get a bruise? In what kind of a thing are you wounded? In the flesh. It's your body. You don't get bruised and then look and say, look at that bruise over there. That's the one I got. It's not an item that you acquire. It's a mark of the flesh. Wounds are in the flesh. The stripes are on the flesh. The bruising is in the flesh. By His stripes you are healed. By all of this, in the flesh of Jesus Christ, you have peace and healing. Okay, let's speak this again. But He who was wounded for our transgressions; He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon Him, and by His stripes we are healed. Okay, the Catechism. Uh, Second article of the Creed. What is the second article? And I I believe believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven. And sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From <coughs> he will come to judge the living and the dead. What does this mean? He redeemed me that I may be his own, and live under him in his kingdom, and serve him in everlasting righteousness, innocence, and blessedness. Just as he is risen from the dead, lives, and reigns to all eternity. This True. This final piece of the explanation for the second article answers the question, what is the purpose of your redemption? It's all fine and dandy to say Jesus died for my sins and he purchased and won me with his holy, innocent, precious blood and his suffering and death. But then the question is this, why did he do that? So we'll and live. to what end? That we might live. Well, yes, and it's all here. So that I may be his own. Uh, Sin is the removal. It's the separation. If you have sin, you cannot be with God. Because sin and the holiness of God cannot cohabitate. They cannot be together. So you must have the forgiveness of sins. You must have redemption in order to be with God. So that you may be His own, that your sins might be forgiven, and live under Him, under Him as His children, as His dearly beloved. That's why we begin the service, dearly beloved, uh, in His kingdom and serve Him. God wants you to serve Him, but serving Him is not what you think it is. And being bound to service, the service of Christ, is not a restriction of your freedom. In fact, it is the most glorious freedom that you can have to be bound to serve Christ. Because when you serve Christ and are receiving all the gifts that he gives, you are living your life to the fullest degree according to your intended Life according to God's plan for uh, for life at the beginning of creation. Sin is not something that God wants. Sin is what enslaves you and binds you. When you're free from sin, you are bound only to Christ. You can do the things that Jesus does. You can think the Jesus uh, think the things Jesus thinks and say the things Jesus says because you're not bound to the sin that would tell you no. So, like Jesus does, I now do the purpose of redemption. Questions? Okay, children, you can go downstairs. Okay, I printed out more copies of the Ten Commandments handout. It's on the table if you don't have one or if you lost it or if you don't remember what we're talking about. But it's exactly the same one that we've been using so if you have it, don't, you don't need to pick up a new one. And there's still copies of that article that I printed out in case you want to read it. That's on the table there. Come in. Welcome. Come. Yeah. Uh, okay. Okay. So, Ten Commandments, we're starting to get into the meat now, (laughs) at long last. After weeks and weeks of talking about the Ten Commandments, we're finally getting to the Ten Commandments. So, I want to begin by highlighting this quotation uh, from the large catechism. Probably one of the next things that we'll be doing in this class is just going through the large catechism. Because you know the small catechism, but do you know the large catechism? It says everything that the small catechism does, but bigger and better and longer, which is perfect for me. (laughs) Okay? Um, So, there's this quotation then from what Luther writes in the large catechism. What God commands must be much nobler than anything we ourselves may devise. True or false? True. True, yes. That what God commands is something that's way better for you than anything you think is good for yourself and could come up with on your own. That's sort of one of the hallmarks of God, is that his wisdom is better than and far surpasses yours. And Christian humility says, indeed, amen to that, Uh, I will let God be in charge and I will let God be the one to do the thinking and I'll be the one to do the following because he really knows what he's doing and every time I try and do it, something goes horribly wrong. And because there is no greater or better teacher to be found than God, there can also be no better teaching than his. And where is his teaching? It's in his law in his word, which is why then, I mean, I've said this for the past few weeks now, but we're hitting, this is where the rubber's hitting the road now. Uh, this is why somebody like David or the other psalmists can say things like, I delight in the law of the Lord. And that's a weird thing for Lutherans. It's a weird thing for a Lutheran to hear, I love the law of God. I love it. I delight in the law of God. Blessed is the one who loves the law. Because your whole life you've been taught you're supposed to hate the law. Why? Because the law hates you. And the law is coming for you. And it's gonna smash you into the ground and it's gonna grind you in like a cigarette butt on the pavement. And that's what what we think of the law. And then we read the psalmist who says, oh, you're actually supposed to love the law. And you think, how on earth am I supposed to love the law? How on earth am I supposed to love a God who doesn't care about me, who's just there to set impossible goals and then pound me into the ground every single time I can't meet his impossible goals? Not to burst your bubble, but as with many things, The Ten Commandments aren't about you. They're not about you. And this, then, is the key to understanding every word being used two ways and why the law is given in the first place. Because it's all about God for you and the good things that God wants you to have and the good that he wants to do for you and on behalf of you. That's what it's really all about. The law is not purely this wicked thing that exists solely to punish. So we'll look at some of that in just a second. First, I want us to refresh ourselves with the commandments. So, let's look at this. Exodus 19. Exodus 19 and 20. And I'm just going to read these quick things and then we'll talk a little bit about it. Okay. Exodus 19, 3-6. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob... And tell the children of Israel, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. Now, what does this sound like? If you shall do this, then you will be. In our grammar classes, we would call that a what kind of a sentence? A conditional sentence. If goal A is accomplished, then reward B will be distributed. And then to help explain the nature of conditions, here is the reverse. If goal A is not met then reward B will not be distributed. In other words, if you don't keep my commandments, then you won't be my special people, and you won't be the apple of my eye, and I won't love you. It's not a conditional in that sense. It's not a conditional in the sense that God gives you this sentence and then says, now... you better uh, better work to shape yourself up because I'm going to be here watching you and if you don't shape up, well, I just can't love you. It's not a very God thing to say, really. Um, It's conditional in this sense. This is the way. This is where life is and as long as you are here, as long as you are here this is where i am and when you're with me you're going to live buddy and i'm going to shower you with gifts i'm going to spoil you i'm going to spoil you because you're my children and i love you but if you depart from this i can't keep doing that for you i can't spoil you if you're not here with me and there's no life apart from me so if you stay here you're guaranteed that this is going to be really good for you and if you go out there, you're guaranteed that it's not going to be. But I'll love you here and I'll love you there. And I'll take care of you here and I'll sure work hard when you're here to try and get you back here. But I want you to know that right here is where it's, where it's at. This is where life is. That's what this conditional is. See, Verse yes.
1: Verse six has a familiarity to Peter a holy nation.
0: Yes. Yeah. In fact, you are picking up what I'm laying down because I you read my road sign. Because <laughs> we're going to be heading that direction in just a little bit here. Uh, tying in with the introduction of the Ten Commandments, which you should read as a part of the commandments there. The whole purpose. Why, why am I giving these to you? Well, here's the introduction. Let me tell you a little bit about what, I'm, what I've done for you and then what I... I'm saying and what I'm going to say so that you understand these words just a little bit better, he says. So Exodus 20 then. And God spoke all these words saying, wait, spoke all these what? Words. All these words. Wait, you mean it doesn't say commandments? No, it doesn't. It says words but your editors put in commandments. Step number one in understanding that there is a positive side to the law is realizing that the theology of your editors is not the theology of Scripture. Just because it says the Ten Commandments and it's commonly almost shorthand referred to as, oh, the Ten Commandments, even in the Catechism, the Ten Commandments, uh, that doesn't mean that they are simply commands. They are words, and where is life to be found? In the word of God. And remember this, too. When Jesus gets up in the morning and goes to the bathroom to brush his teeth, he looks in the mirror and he sees the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are the reflection of Jesus. They are the nature and the character of God. And the Beatitudes are his job description. All of this is really important stuff because how can you hate the Ten Commandments and how can they be out to kill you when Jesus doesn't hate you and he's not out to kill you? He is the word. He is the word made flesh and he wants peace for you. Which means then that the law also wants peace for you. Okay? He spoke these words. Every word can be used two ways. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Here it is. That's what we're going to look at in just a little bit. I am the Lord your God. Who am I? What does this mean to you? Why do my words matter? What have I done for you? Why have I done this for you? Why should you listen to any of these words? What is their purpose? All of that is right here in this first little verse. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of Egypt. Is it a sin that God is a jealous God? Yes. So then the obvious answer is yes, no. no, it is not a sin. So then, because we think of jealousy often, uh, that, that green monster, well a monster's not a good thing. And we think of jealousy as a bad thing. If you, if you have a, uh, a jealous boyfriend or the jealous girlfriend, That's that's considered an unfavorable trait. But why then does it become favorable with God? There's something about jealousy that is good. And it's the same kind of jealousy that your pastor ought to have for you. And this is a concrete example. If you want to leave this congregation and say, go to the Methodist church or the Baptist church or a non-denominational church, I can't stop you. You're an adult. And if that's what you want to do, then I have to respect your decision and I have to let you go. But you better know that I'm just not going to roll over and let you go. I'm going to sit down with you and I'm going to talk to you, not to punish you and tell you, don't you realize what you're doing, you damn dirty rotten sinner? Why do you wanna go there? We're way better than those people. I'll never say that, but I do want to sit down with you and understand why, and I'm not gonna just let you go because you ask. After we talk about it, if you still want to, I will, But I'm a jealous pastor. Why don't pastors like sheep stealers? Because they're jealous for their congregation. Because these are their children. Because I am a father to you all. I don't say dear children when I preach just to be cute. The... Just as the father is the the spiritual head of his household, as he is the father of his household, so too then is the pastor the spiritual head and the father of all of you. Which is why it's okay if you ever want to call your pastor father. People call me father all the time and I don't ever correct them. Because it's true, theologically speaking. So, I am jealous for you. Why? then the deeper reason for why I'm jealous for you isn't about membership statistics, or rosters, or offering money. It goes deeper than that. Firstly, because I want you to have, it's, yeah, exactly, it's love. I want you to have what's good for you. And I know where that is. And now, you may not like me, you may hate my guts. I really couldn't care any less, honestly. People have hated my guts before, and I've been called every bad name in the book. Just bounces right off me. But what you can't hate is your Lord. And what you can't hate is the good things that you know your Lord wants for you. I'm just here as a steward. I'm just here to give you the things that Jesus knows are good for you. But I also know with Jesus that they're good for you, and I want to take care of you. And it's hard, any parent understands this, that it is hard when your children don't want your love. When your children do not want you to take care of them. When you try and try and try and try, and they keep pushing you away. Listen up, Brian. Your parents love you. Even when they punish you, they do it because they love you. It hurts them more than it hurts you. <laughs> okay?
1: Uh,
0: yeah. Well, so, um, to see the love that is spurned You're jealous for that child, I'm jealous for this congregation, the Lord is jealous for his flock because he knows where life is to be found and when you start walking away and spurning that love and trying to go someplace else, you're not gonna find it, but you won't listen. That's the problem. You're the 16 year old kid who thinks he knows everything and doesn't listen to his parents. Yeah, Emmy's back there. (laughs) <laughs> oh, yeah.
2: <laughs> Bruce. I have to know what you just said about if someone came to you and says, I'm going to go to another church and go to another church. And I've known some families, uh, you might say, for a long time. And it seems like they have, in lack of better words, tried every church in town.
0: Sure. Sure.
2: So and so goes there, and we have such a good time. Da, 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 and, then, and then a few years down the road, and they're going to another one. And then sometime they're going out of camp. hmm And to me, they're not focusing on the reason for going to church. Sure. It's more of a social thing. So.
0: Well, that's a good question. Well, see, my first red flag in a que- in a statement like that is they do such and such. Okay, what is the such and such that they do that makes them so much better than what Jesus does for you here? But are
2: they even going to
0: listen? Well, they might not.
2: Yeah, but honestly, if a person doesn't feel like they're
0: You should look to the place where you're being fed, but you also shouldn't look at being fed as something that is quantified by your own feelings and your own experiences. You have to take a quick step back outside of yourself for a second and think about what the church is here to do and what Christ is there to do for you. Is Christ feeding you with his word? Yeah. Is he giving you his body and his blood? Well, yeah. Is he forgiving your sins? Well, yeah. Is he baptizing? Yeah. Is he making you return to your baptism? Yes. Well, then, are you being fed? You don't have to agree with everything that is preached.
2: So you don't have to get anything out of the sermon to...
0: I'm not saying that you shouldn't get things out of a sermon. I'm mostly just saying you should, if your first gut reaction is, well, I've got to leave, then you need to take a step back and and, uh, work towards finding reasons to stay, because leaving a church should never be that easy of a decision. Now, there are going to be times when what is preached isn't going to hit you the way that you want, or sometimes a sermon isn't going to be the greatest sermon in the world, or it's going to be kind of boring. But guess what? There's a whole lot else that's going to protect you from that sermon. If you don't like what I'm saying, if you don't want to listen to a sermon, if you're bored and you're tired and you're, you're going in and out and you don't really understand, well then look at the stained glass windows. You'll get a picture lesson instead. Look at the text of the hymns that you're singing for that day. Well, you get a lesson right there. A whole nother sermon. Look, I'm going to preach a bad sermon every now and then, and probably more times than not. That's just how it goes. I'm just a man. But Jesus will never give you a bad supper. You might sing a hymn or two that you don't care for. But Jesus will never give you a bad supper. Jesus is never going to screw up forgiving your sin. So what does it really mean to be fed? Now the other thing is that you have to look at what's being taught, too. And if what is being taught is something that is blatantly against Scripture, you don't just leave, you go and you talk about it. So if I'm, I've said this before, you have to judge. Never accept anything that people say just because they say it. Don't even accept it just because they have the authority to say it especially when it comes to scripture, I could take everything that my seminary professors have told me at face value, and then I wouldn't know how to think for myself, and I wouldn't have an opinion on anything, and I'd be more confused than I ever was before because a lot of them have differing opinions about what things mean. So you have to take what somebody says and you have to measure it against the truth of scripture. And if it aligns with what scripture has already said, then thanks be to God. And if it doesn't, well, then you take another step back and you say, okay, my gut reaction is I'm gonna get out of dodge as fast as possible. But maybe I'll raise my concerns with the pastor. I'll talk to him. Uh, So that's the other thing before you leave that you, you should strive. Basically, my point is this. You should strive to stay. You should strive to stay for as long as you are able. It should never be your gut reaction or your first instinct to say, well, time to go, I, he preached a sermon I didn't like. I don't feel fed here. Or we don't have communion enough times, so I'm gonna leave. Or we don't say matins enough times, so we're gonna leave. Or we don't have enough services on Sunday because my schedule isn't being met. Well, I'm gonna leave. So you know, those things on the, um, on the outside tend to be more superficial. And it's fine, you should be in a place where you feel comfortable. But on the other hand, the church is not always here to make you feel comfortable. Now, all of this being said, there is also a social aspect to the church. Now, that's not the only part of the church, but there is a social aspect. You are a body. You are all Christians here together. So when people come to church, smile and talk to them and be nice. Newsflash Christians, you should just kind of strive to be decent human beings and as long as you strive to be decent human beings, yeah, you're going to rub some people the wrong way every now and then, but guess what? They'll forgive you, and you work to forgive them, and guess what else? You're not always going to like everybody in the church, and nobody says you have to. Jesus doesn't stand up there saying, now listen up, you better like everybody, and you better get along with them. You better be willing to have everybody in this whole place to your house, serving them dinner with a smile on your face. Okay? You don't have to like everybody. Not everybody gets along with everybody else, and that's okay. The difference between here and there, though, they're being outside, not, I'm not pointing any other churches. The difference between in, in the church and outside the church is when you're a part of the church, you at least pretend, and you at least work to get along with everyone. Okay? So that's the social aspect. Church is not a place to come out and, and hang out and club around. This is not one giant click of the town, as if, well, the Lutheran clique does this and this, and, and the church on the hill clique does so and so, and I like their little activities better than I like their activities, so I'm gonna go hang out with them. Again, you're looking at you're looking at the wrong stuff, Bill and then Ronda. I have
1: two brief anecdotes that apply to what you said there. One was if, if you disagree with something or you don't understand something the pastor says. I asked the pastor of the master one time, I said, so then people come to see you later in the week or in the ap- Sunday afternoon or whatever. He says, oh no, right at the back door of the church, I mean, I'm shaking hands, or front door, whatever you want to call it, as they are exiting the service, he says. Mm-hmm. And I think that particularly Lutheran is that people, I shouldn't say buttonhole the pastor, but they ask for a clarification. right, he
0: says, that, they don't
1: come back later. They want to know right now. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing that I heard that I think is somewhat, particularly Lutheran, and maybe a couple of generations back, I remember when pastor say that what uh, most Lutherans have for Sunday dinner is roast pastor being, <laughs> being somewhat uh, precigious. Yeah, yeah. What he was referring to was that at Sunday dinner, after church, they said and discussed the sermon and kicked it back and forth. You know what's what was this about and mm-hmm. what the meaning was, which I think is an excellent idea. You don't just hear the sermon and then walk off and forget about it. You re- you review the sermon and that, and that's why I like your posting then electronically. Then you can come back Sunday evening or Wednesday night like that and listen to it again and and get more out of it. yeah, not just and uh, so that discussion. At Sunday dinner is good, mm-hmm. and sure. it's not particularly roasting faster it's
0: disgusting. Sure, and, and the one thing that I would say in response is this. If you do have questions, I'd encourage you just to ask them right when you have them, which is why the way I teach Bible class is if you have a question and it diverts the course of our study, so be it. I'd rather talk about something that you have a burning question about and a desire to learn about than force you into sitting at my feet learning what I want you to learn. We'll get to what I want you to learn eventually, but we'll hit everything you want to know on the way. And uh, as far as sermons go, if you don't understand something that I have preached or said in a sermon, or if you uh, dozed off and came back in at a, and you heard me say something and you didn't quite get the context and you didn't understand where it was coming from, just ask me and ask any pastor because here's the thing, folks. Any pastor who is worth his salt and who does his job and who puts in the time and effort to study the scriptures so that he can preach, write and preach a sermon will be able to answer your question on the spot because he'll have put in the work. Okay? He'll know the background of his sermon. I write more for a sermon than what is written down on the page. And any pastor worth his salt does exactly the same thing. You have more to say than what you can fit into your 12 to 13-minute sermon. That's really hard, especially for me. Okay. Rhonda? Well, I had a few things to say, but someone else may said it. Oh, well, I'm sorry that I said it. <laughs> <laughs> See, not everybody has to get along, Rhonda, but we all pretend like it. I'm sitting here going, I thought I had too. No, I didn't. I'll give you credit. You, you thought of it too. I'll always remember, because we have the two grandkids, you know. Sure, yep. And it's kind of, every once in a while, you miss part of the sermon, you know,
1: because you're helping or something. Mm -hmm. But I always remember
2: Wayne Balmer always said, if you pick up one word or one sentence or something out of a sermon, it sticks with you. If you hear one thing, because sometimes the kids will distract me Mm
1: -hmm. and I'll look over and then I come back and I hear something, you know.
0: Uh, that is proof right there that preaching is not a work of man, but a work of God. That preaching is a work of the Holy Spirit. The other proof is if you are a pastor and you're trying to write a sermon, every, I'm gonna here, so I'll give you an illustration of my week. Uh, first thing that I do after writing the Congregation of Prayers, I sit down and I look at the text. And I do a little bit of work in the Greek. I do some translating. If I have questions about what some of the words mean, maybe they aren't translated the best, and I want to try and prove a point. I'll do some study there. Do all of this, all of this, all of this, read through all the text. And then I sit back in my chair, and I think to myself, what in the hey-ho am I supposed to do with this? (laughs) And then by the end of the week, I'm coming home to Carol and going, oh boy, I've got this and this and this and this, but I could only fit this in. And I go, oh, there's way too, way too much to talk about. See, but that's not my work. That's the work of the Holy Spirit that's writing a sermon. Because if it were up to me, the sermon would be me standing up there and going, well, I don't really know what I'm supposed to say. Okay? And the Holy Spirit knows what needs to stick with you. I don't, I mean, sometimes I, I know if we've had a conversation over the course of the week or if I know that, People are, or specific groups are struggling with certain things. Well, then I kind of know what folks need to hear. But I can never gauge what every single person sitting in that congregation needs to hear at that precise moment. But I know someone who can. And that person will deliver to you the words that you need to hear. And sometimes the words you need to hear aren't even in the sermon. This is sacrilege, heresy for me to say this. Ooh, and it's public now. I hope I don't get a knocking on my door from a synod rep. But sometimes what you need to hear is as simple as the text of the liturgy. Sometimes what you need to hear is as simple as one little sentence from one of the readings. Sometimes what you need to hear is as simple as the gradual or the introit. Or, In the stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins. Sometimes that's all you need to hear. And sometimes that stuff will hit you. But every single week, something will hit you, whether it's a stanza from a hymn, a part of the liturgy, one of the readings, the introit, the gradual, any number of the propers, or something from the sermon. But something will always hit you and make you think at the end of the service. And it has nothing to do with the people that write the hymns, the people... Who have passed down the liturgy for 2,000 years, or your young buck pastor who thinks he's hot stuff and preaches a sermon to you. Has nothing to do with any of those folks. It's all about. What I think is cool is when you're like, you have grandkids
1: and they're coloring or whatever, and so you're kind of paying attention to them.
0: Yeah, they are little sponges and I'm always impressed and often put to shame by their ability to comprehend and learn. Nancy?
2: Back in the old days when the men and the women were separated, Mm -hmm. and the men had to teach whatever they heard to the family. And if it was Sunday dinner and Uncle Joe and Grandpa and and so and so and so and so was there discussing things, the women didn't always have Chance to even hear that because of the kids, they were trying to keep them fed and occupied. Mm -hmm. So they didn't always get to hear it, you know. Study like the men were studying. Sure.
0: What your service was. Sure. Well, and that's another place where what the liturgy does is it protects you. The liturgy, the liturgy is like a bulletproof vest, and it protects you from so many things. It protects you from bad pastors, from bad preaching, from bad hymns from your own thoughts, from your own inability to pay attention because you'll always come back and there's always that framework. So you're always gonna get something and every week the liturgy is, the ordinaries of the liturgy stay the same but the propers change to focus on what's important for that day. So the hymns change, the intro it changes, the gradual changes, the readings. All of that changes because every day is a new day in a part of this cyclical church year.
2: Well, that's like what Marla said. -hmm. And I even called you and told you about this. Children, you'd be surprised what they soak up.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Because one time Jordan was holding Emily
2: and Emily was doing something on her forehead. And Jordan said, What are you doing? She goes, I'm doing what Pastor does when we go up front. So she was four at the time, a four-year-old. Yeah. Getting something
0: every time I notice when she's up
2: there, and you do that, she does not
1: move. Mm-hmm. Have you
2: noticed that? I have, yes. You know, she
0: looks right at you, and she stands right there. I'll so, tell you, I'll tell you one thing. What? It doesn't matter if they do move because I don't let go till it's done. <laughs> so, little, yeah, James. sometimes, sometimes James and little Grant Kent, those are the two. Yeah. They'll kind of look, and then. You better believe my hand's still glued there because once that sign of the cross gets started, boy, it's going to finish. I don't care what direction they're looking. That's going to be there. (laughs) They soak it up. They pay attention to more than you think they are. And even if they're sitting there coloring... This is why I keep saying it's not about you, and and faith isn't about rational comprehension. It's not like you have to think about, well, do I understand these things? Have I thought enough about this? Do I know enough of these? That's not the point of faith. Faith isn't this data dump. It's not an intellectual assent to whatever grouping of teachings you've been given that you have to sit back and think like a philosopher. Oh, yes. Oh, well, now I understand this, so I'll take this well, put this inside my memory bank, and now I'm just this much holier cause I, and this much more faith. Uh, it, that's not about it at all. The faith, the faith of the Christian life is about the word of God working on you and the word will work on you whether you understand it or not. The creed, well, I don't believe in the virgin birth. Well, just keep saying the creed, and someday you will, not because of your own intellectual assent, but because the words of the creed will work on you. The word of God is powerful, and it is transformative, and uh, it works especially well on little sponges who don't know that they're supposed to be thinking about that kind of stuff and, and considering it and parsing it out. It works so well on those little ones because it hits them and they just kinda of sit back and go, huh. And they will often come to you later in the week to ask you questions because they ruminate, which is what every person, look, you have so much to learn from kids. Honestly, when Jesus uses children as his examples, you should listen to what he has to say because, in many ways, children are the icons of faith. Children ruminate in a way that adults don't. An adult s- thinks about something and goes, okay, well, that's interesting, and I'll put it back on the shelf and do something else. But, but a child goes, oh, well, I can't really get that out of my head, oh, I just keep thinking about this. Oh, I'll keep playing it back in my head and then I'll go ask my parents because they know things and." Like Thursday of the week, I'll come and ask them a question about what pastor said in his sermon. That sounds like a good time. Uh, so they ruminate on this. There's that collect, uh, the collect for the word. Um, we let, let us read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest. I hate the new translation because it's take to heart. It's not the same thing. Inwardly digest. You're sheep, after all, you ruminate. You are chewing your cud. Sometimes you'll sit there and it... Yes. Pastor's words come back up. You've got to chew on them a little longer. Mm. Swallow them. Mm. Words of the gospel just came up. You chew on that a little longer. Just keep on letting the word have its way. Larry.
1: What I think the world around here believes is <clears throat> we as Lutherans are so ingrained into the Bible and we think law
0: Gospel, the world well, let's go get done, and maybe let's a little longer, right, you that or they will say la 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 you don't need the forgiveness of sins now it's time for you better shape up you, you, you're using that bad language during the week well doggone it God hates that and he's going to send you to hell so you better shape up amen and then you leave church feeling like that oh my goodness <laughs> Uh,
1: lost
0: the part the yeah, family. I mean it's
1: a So that's the part I'm saying is we, we as Lutherans dig deep into the Bible to get our guidance of where we're gonna go. Where mm. others tend to let's make it a social event, let's
0: add everybody on the back, it's gonna be just fine. Some yeah, certainly that's not do. A joke Yeah, here's, so, I I don't want to name names, but I've listened to a lot of sermons in my day from a lot of folks, uh, and at least half of them weren't Lutheran, and, uh, you know, I'm not that old, but I've been around, and uh, sometimes you just sit back and you, you I don't know what you're even saying. It's, a, it's like a string of moral platitudes, and if you took each one individually, you could think about it and ruminate on it and go, yes, that's worth something. But then it's like this never-ending train, and they keep adding cars on and cars on and cars on, and it sounds really good, but it's like eating a steady diet of cotton candy. It's not going to sustain you, and sooner or later, you're going to get sick. Uh, this is why when you come here, Jesus is going to feed you a steak. You don't have to live on cotton candy. It's,
1: it's difficult to say more with less words. It is.
0: I, I have a pastor friend, and he, he has a PhD, and his whole PhD thesis was the gospel in five words or less. Some, it was something to that effect. Simple explanations of the faith. And he talked all about this. What is faith? How do you define faith in five words or less? And he gets, they get vicars every year at his church, and he always tells them, Uh, if you can't say it in five words or less, don't bother saying it. You have to be able to think about large, grand theological topics and explain them in five words or less. You can't be a university philosophy professor standing up in front of your congregation and trying to steer everybody and lead them all, have them follow you when you're talking way above their heads and explaining the faith in in a manner that's more complicated than it needs to be. Yes. John 4, sixteen.
1: Yeah. A little more than five words, but not very many.
0: Yeah, a little more than five words. But that's right. So what is the gospel then? See, this is this is one word. I can tell you what the gospel is in one word. The gospel is touch. 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 And in particular, if I want to use three words, it is the touch of Jesus. Touch of Jesus. Yeah, the it is the quote touch of Jesus. <laughs> Thank you for counting. The v the v yeah, the v is not included in the count. Touch of Jesus. It is touch touch of Jesus. Okay, the word upon your ears. That's little sound waves that come and they hit your ear. They hit you. The word and I love that the image of this is just acoustics that the that the waves travel through the ear and they, and they hit your drum and it <clears throat> resonates and then that sends the signals to your brain. And But the, the you can think of the word almost as this concrete thing that's actually hitting you, that it isn't just this disembodied concept that somebody stands up and talks into thin air and you hear and understand. No, the words are coming at you and they're hitting you or they're washing over you. Oh, oh, word. Words, words, t- I'm being touched even just by the word. So the spirit comes and delivers the words to you. And even there, there is the touch. This is why Jesus breathes. Jesus breathes on his disciples. And um, it's, it's not about Jesus sharing his morning breath. It's not like he stands in front of them and says nothing. and just goes. <sighs> now that I've expelled air upon you, let me talk at you. It's not that at all. It's all about the word. How do you talk? Brian, we talked about this in midweek. How do you talk? What do you need to talk? You need air to talk. The ruach. The breath. The wind of the spirit. The word is delivered via air. When Jesus breathes, he breathes with words the Holy Spirit will be upon you. As, you. as I have forgiven your sins, you forgive them. It's all about the word, the breath, the wind. It's all about the word and the spirit. The touch of Jesus in body and in blood. The touch of Jesus in a washing of renewal and rebirth of the Holy Spirit whom he has poured out on you generously. All of this, that's the gospel.
1: Pentecostal the gospel is the breath of God.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the ruach. The psuche is the Greek, like psyche, your soul. Uh, The breath of the Spirit. Uh, There is the breathing of the Spirit, and then the tongues of flame appear, and it's all about the Word. The Spirit comes as the breath of God. Think about, and and this is, you know, I don't want to commit Trinitarian heresy, which I'm about to do. Um, So take this with a grain of salt, okay? But you look at the person of the Trinity, And uh, here is the Father, right? The Father is the will. And God said. Well, what two other components do you need in order for the will to speak? You need first what is the thing that's going to be spoken, which is a, a word. A word! Wow, what a novel concept. The word was in the beginning with God and the word took on flesh. So there it is, the will of the father. And you hear that, you see that phrase, the will of God, the will of the father. I do my father's will. Okay, the will, there is the word. And then what carries the word? The breath. The spirit is the ruach. That's the Hebrew for breath or wind. Wind and breath are the same. Now, if you think about it, conceptually, they aren't. Wind is a, a, a weather phenomena, And the breath is the thing that you take in. But it's all the same word. Breathing and wind. The blowing of the spirit. The carrying of the word. Remember, the Holy Spirit never functions. Um, well, not no one in the Trinity functions independently. It's all, everything is a Trinitarian act, always. Uh, and... What the Holy Spirit does is, who does he point to, Brian? We talked about this in midweek too. Who does the Holy Spirit always point to? Correct. The Holy Spirit, his only job is to go, hey, 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 look at this guy. Look at this guy. Come with me. Go to this guy. He says some really great words. He offers some pretty great gifts. Come on over, come on over. It's like he's Jesus' hype man. Hey, yeah, that guy said, oh, right, mm mm-hmm, yeah, listen to what he has to say. That's the Holy Spirit always leading, guiding, pointing, directing you to Jesus, wherever Jesus is found, in word, in water, in body, and in blood. The Spirit directs you. Uh, But the Spirit is the breath of God, the breathing of God, the breath of life into man. All of it comes by the Word and the Spirit and the will of God. So now that's Trinitarian heresy because it splits up the three and makes them three different things. But I so take it with a grain of salt, but the idea there of the will of God and the word of God and the breath of God, but they all work together because if you think of it in terms of your own ability to do things, uh, like you want to have a conversation. I want to say, good morning, Bill. So if you... Break down that fraction of a fraction of a second in your brain and look at the tasks that need to be accomplished. First, I have to have the will that says, I am going to say good morning to Bill. And then I have to know the words that I'm going to use to say good morning to Bill are, quote, good morning Bill. And then you have to have the air to say good morning Bill. But all of those things happen in a split second like that, but it takes all of those different components in order to do something even as simple as to say, good morning, Bill." That's the, like the working of the Trinity. All of these things working together, non-independently. Word is never independent from the breath. The breath and the word are never independent from the will. Are you following? Okay. <laughs> Yeah, well, far away from where we started. (laughs) Yeah, okay. Now, I'm just going to finish reading through the Ten Commandments, and then we'll uh, have a couple other things to say, and then we'll dive in and start looking at this little chart. What God says, or excuse me, when God says, it is as if he says, so that's my paraphrasing. And as always, you know, there's scripture there, so if you don't believe me, just believe what Jesus says. You don't have to believe me, but you do have to believe Jesus. Okay? Uh, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. This is, if you want to hear a good explanation of this commandment, just listen to the sermon today. It's all about the Sabbath day. Uh, Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and hallowed it. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God has given you. First commandment with a promise. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Now, how do, you, how do we sum up all of this in just one little sentence? Okay, (laughs) the Ten Commandments. Well, that's certainly less than five words. I don't have less than five words. I have one sentence. Touch evil and flee, or excuse me, flee from evil and touch good. That's the Ten Commandments. Flee from evil, touch good. And, you know, if we want (coughs) to... Imagine what God would say about these or imagine what it is as if he says when he introduces them Well, you can say, listen, I'll, I'll be the one to show you what is good and I will be the one to show you what is evil. Follow where I lead. I want to give you life. I love you. I want to take care of you. And you can say, okay, take care of me. Or you can say, take off, hoser. I don't want anything to do with you. But it's best to say, Amen. Let it be done to me according to the will of God, as the Blessed Virgin said. That's That's an icon of faith. Let it be done unto me as the Lord wills, as it has been spoken. This is what God wants to do to me. He wants to take care of me and feed me and Clothe me and give me things and do all of that. Forgive my sins. Sure, yeah. It's not a bad life. Not a bad life at all. Okay. Um, questions. Hmm. Ah, a wealth of understanding. this
1: is Everything you said
0: Yeah, ruminate, and then next week you can repeat back to me all the things I said that I probably don't even remember and then ask the questions about it. (laughs) Okay, uh, I'll see you at the high altar.